0: Yahweh, we just thank You for another night in Your Word. Um, once again, we always pray that You just calm our minds and remove the distractions. Um, just allow us to focus on Your Word and just to see the truth. And I just pray that You would give me the words to say that Your truth would come out clearly, that the Holy Spirit would communicate. And I pray that the Word tonight would be both convicting and encouraging. Um, With our sin and always the need to be transformed more, we cannot be transformed without conviction. But at the same time, with our low self-esteem and our constant beating ourselves up and our being drowned in the world's problems and sufferings, we always could use your encouragement. And so I pray that your word would be both of those tonight and that you would speak truth into our hearts and, most importantly, that it would transform us, renew us, And that we would not be like one who looks in the mirror and forgets what it looks like when we walk away. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. We still have a few things to talk about in that passage, but we go back to chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore we must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ and move on to maturity, not laying this foundation again of repentance from dead works Faith in God, teaching about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this is what we intend to do, if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good work of God, and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy to renew them again to repentance, since they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding Him up to contempt. For the ground that has soaked up the rain that frequently falls on it and yields useful vegetation for those who tend it receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is useless and about to be cursed. Its fate is to be burned. But in your case, dear friends, even though we speak like this, We are convinced of better things relating to salvation, for God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love that you have demonstrated for His name, and having served and continuing to serve the saints. But we passionately want each of you to demonstrate the same ignorance for the fulfillment of your hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and perseverance inherit the promise." So the warning is there, and then the encouragement. And this is always something that you need to remember with the Word of God. Many, 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 many times in the Word of God, God is slapping you in the face and hugging you at the same time. I don't know if you've ever gotten that. The prophets call you a worm and a dog and even a whore a lot of times. And then it turns around and says, but I love you and you're a child of God and I'm going to restore you and I'm going to come in and redeem you and I will never forsake my promises. Paul constantly rips the Corinthians, a new one, and then he turns around and says, but I really love you guys and I can't wait to see you and pour out my love and blessings on you. And Romans says, you're a scumbag, for all have fallen short of the glory of God, and all are sinners, and you're doomed, and even if you think you're righteous, you're not. But thank God Jesus Christ loves you. And over and over, the scripture constantly slaps you and hugs you at the same time. And that's what Hebrews is doing, because we need both. Have you ever noticed that we as humans are so contradictory in so many ways? But the one that really blows me away the most is how I can struggle with low self-esteem and pride at the same time. Then one moment I'm like, oh, I could have done it better than that. They would have just asked me, or I know a better way. And the next moment you're beating yourself up and you don't think you're worthy, and nobody likes you, nobody called you on Friday night, and your voicemail is empty, and it's just, you're constantly beating yourself up and having pride at the same time. And this is why Romans says that you should not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. I mean don't go excess with pride and arrogance, but at the same time, than you ought to. I mean that there is a level of value and worth that you do have for being a child of God. And this is the forever tension that we face as humans. Is that we're constantly going from one extreme to the other... And God has to do both, slap you and hug you at the same time to keep you in the right place. Now, that's a very gross overstatement on the issue, but it makes the point that this is what God is doing. There's are some times where we do need to face these hard truths, and then God immediately follows it up with this love and acceptance and compassion. Because remember, He is our King and God, and we fear Him because He is our judge But at the same time, he is our high priest, which means we can boldly and confidently go into him, knowing we're going to receive compassion and mercy and sympathy. And that's the tension we hold. And we tend to go to one extreme or the other. So back to the warning passage. I want you to notice something. That The other thing that's very interesting is that the author of Hebrews constantly invokes the we, 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 we. He sees himself as one of them. But when we get to this warning passage, he says it is impossible for those. He makes it very clear in this warning passage that these people are not one of us. And I think that's another one that really distinctly separates everything. If these were believers who are in danger of losing salvation, if these were believers in danger of losing rewards, if these were believers who are just hypothetically being warned, then why does he stop using the we? And he immediately goes to them, they, those. And it immediately reminds you of First John where he says, For they depart from us, because they never belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have never departed from us. And he makes it very clear, the us and the they. And he's doing the same thing here, the we and those and they. And I think that makes it very clear that he does not see these people as a part of the community of faith. And that, that change in the pronoun is very important. Because the Bible does not, the, that's a very important thing that the Bible always uses all the time with the you and the plural you and those. The Bible is always very specific when it comes to pronouns. And those are not lightly changed. And so I think that's another very strong argument for the fact that these are not genuine believers, or they would have been called us. Even in the other warning passages, when he says we're in danger of drifting away, he says we. He includes them. It's, this is the first time that he begins to say they and those, which means the other warning passages could apply to us, even if you're a believer, but this one does not. This one is you're not claiming to really truly be a believer here. The other thing I would like to say is this. I know this is very uncomfortable. I know that some of us have some loved ones very, very, very dear to our heart that we pray for constantly. And the fear of whether they've truly walked away from God and whether there's a point of no return for them or not is a scary, scary thing. And to that, I would say I have no answer on that one i'm doing the best of my ability to communicate the word of god and i would say this none of us really truly know when that line has been crossed and i'm not here sitting judging condemning because everything in the bible says we should just constantly not only persevere in our own faith but persevere in the lives of other people to know the gospel and there are a time when jesus says, do not cast pearls before swine and and kick the dirt off the feet, and all that kind of stuff. But I think those are, remember, we do not want to go back under the law. We do not want to go back into legalism. The law gives you rules. And when those checks are met, that's when you operate. But the Holy Spirit speaks specifically to every unique individual and circumstances that we're in. And so here's what I would say to all this. Don't go back into legalism and the law and say, if you check, 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 then you must be that and I'm done. You follow the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, keep pursuing that person. Keep praying for them. Keep going after them. Then your efforts are not wasted. And that's all we can do. The warning passage is not meant for us to give up. The warning passage is not meant for us to write people off. The warning passage is not meant for us to condemn. The warning passage is meant for those who are in the community, but they're not really committed. And God is warning them because He loves them. Because He doesn't want them to walk away. Because He does not want to condemn them. Because He does not want to write them off. If this is the God of the universe who died on the cross in order to save us, this is the God who's not going to walk away. The warning passage is for that person who's in that seat and in that position trying to make a choice. For us, nothing changes. We pursue, we pray, we share the gospel. And it doesn't matter whether we're a Christian or not, we could always use more gospel. And Paul even makes it very clear. I preach the gospel to those who are saved. Because there's always a greater depth that we can always understand. And so this is not an excuse for fundamentalism, legalism. This should open our heart even more that some are very dangerously close. And the love of us should make us want to try even harder and pursue even harder. And so that's a very important thing to keep in the back of the mind. Is, as harsh and as scary as this is, it's not a license to be apathetic towards those people. He then goes into this passage here, starting in verse 7. He's left the harshness here, but he has one last warning here, and he says this, For the ground that is soaked up the rain, that frequently falls on it, and yields useful vegetation, for those who tend it, receives the blessings from God. So he says, look, there's ground, and this goes right back to the parable of the soils again. There's ground that the seed has been planted in, and it is producing fruitful, useful vegetation. And to that, there are blessings. To that, there are blessings. In contrast, but, if it produces thorns and thistles, it is useless and about to be cursed. Its fate is to be burned. That's harsh. Now everybody go back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. It's right before Jeremiah. Those are two large books. Now there are two images that are allusions that are invoked here. First is Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter 3, God cursed the ground because of sin. And that was a judgment that left to a being removed from the presence of God. Now granted, God immediately followed it up with an animal sacrifice that atone for Adam's and Eve's sins that allowed them a chance back to God. But it started off with, they sinned, God cursed the ground, it produced thorns and thistles, and they were kicked out of the presence of God. So it immediately goes back to that. People who are with God and are now removed from His presence due to judgment and completely lost. The other thing goes back is to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. And the context here is, well, with every prophet, the context is Israel is about ready to be taken into exile because of their sins. And God refers to Israel as a garden, as a land. And he says this, I will sing to my love a song to my lover about his vineyard. The lover, the love is God and his vineyard is Israel. On a fertile hill, he built a hedge around it, removed its stones, and planted a vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and constructed a wine press. He waited for it to produce edible grapes, but it produced sour ones instead. So now, residents of Jerusalem, people of Judah, you decide between me and my vineyard. What more can I do for my vineyard beyond what I have already done? When I waited for it to produce edible grapes why did it produce sour ones instead now i will inform you what i'm about to do to my vineyard i will remove its hedge turn it into a pasture i will break its walls and allow the animals to graze there i will make it a wasteland No one will prune its vines or hoe its ground, and thorns and briars will grow there. I will order the clouds not to drop any rain on it. Indeed, Israel is the vineyard of Yahweh who commands armies. The people of Judah are a cultivated place in which he took delight. He waited for justice, but look what he got, disobedience. He waited for fairness, but look what he got, cries for help. He makes it very clear that God planted a garden, and the garden did not produce fruit. So he turned it into wasteland. And I don't know if you've really studied much about what the wasteland looked like, but basically God brought the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the Assyrians literally, completely weighed lace to everything. They literally just came in and just burned, killed, and raped everything. And the only thing that was left alive were people who were old enough to survive the three, four hundred mile trek to be scattered into another land and yet young enough to not resist them and fight them. And what they basically did is they skinned people alive, they cut their heads off, they built war machines with the body parts of people on them and they marched into village after village and they scattered and slaughtered the world. And that was the judgment that God allowed on His vineyard because His vineyard proved to not truly be of god and this is the warning that he gives us there are people in the community of god who are not truly a part of the community of god and if you think that's not possible israel's history is full of it it's completely full of it and god is not afraid to bring judgment on the people who are part of the house of god so to speak okay even peter makes that point in chapter four or five i forget and so the reality is, this is the illusion he makes. Now listen, the word cursed is used of judgment on sin. To be burned. The, every single time you see burning and fire always refers to eternal judgment. The image of fire is always used of eternal judgment. And the most powerful place that you see that is at the altar. And you take the animal and you place it in the fire, and the animal is completely burned because of your sins. It's judged, it's destroyed, it's consumed. And then the fire imagery is used in the lake of fire in hell, which Christ talks about a lot. And notice here, there is no opportunity for repentance or redemption in this ground analogy. Now, where does God say, but if you turn back, but if you, but if you, he just says it's going to be burned, period. And then when we come to Christ, you know, the lovable one that never had any harsh words because that was the old evil middict the first Testament God. He basically reinvokes Isaiah five, but he changes it up a little bit. See the leader, the ground, the keepers of the ground are the leaders of Israel. They're Israel. The land is the nation. When Christ comes along, he condemns the tenants and the ground. And the tenants are the Pharisees and the ground is the nation. And he goes up to the fig tree and he curses the fig tree and the fig tree stops producing figs. And he turns around in Israel and he says, your judgment is coming. And he tells the parable of Isaiah and the fields, but this time he condemns the field and the tenants to eternal damnation. And that was His chosen people. And this is the point that Romans is making. Do not make the mistake that just because the church is the people of God, that God will not judge the church and condemn them. Because He did that to Israel who were the people of God. Now let me make one last clarification. We're talking about the people of God who are the true spiritual people of God. And the people of God who are just going through the motions are in the house, but they're not really a part of it. And that's the point that God makes. Because here's the other thing that God makes it very clear and all throughout the Bible, especially prophets. There's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. There's always a people who are truly spiritual Israel, who are truly spiritually the body of Christ. And to those, there is no condemnation for those who are found Christ Jesus. And that's what he launches into now. Because in verse 9 he says, But, in your case, dear friends, even though we speak like this, we are convinced of better things relating to salvation. For God is not unjust, as to forget your work, and the love you have demonstrated for His name, and having served and continuing to serve the saints. He looks at some of you and he says, But if you... I'm convinced of better things. Of you, I'm convinced there's no condemnation. Of you, I'm convinced that you're not producing thorns and thistles. Of you, I'm convinced that you're not going to be burned. Why? Because I've seen your love. Now, notice what he goes back to fruit, a changed life, evidence. Of you, I've seen your love. I've seen the way you've served. I've seen the way that you've changed. And of you, I'm convinced of better things because God honors his promises. And that's so important to remember that God looks at your heart because the Word of God is like a double edged sword that pierces through the bone and the marrow and the spirit and separating even things that are non material and material. And that's the thing that we really, truly need to count on. The question that you need to ask yourself is do you love Jesus? Do you want to know him better? Are things changing? I love the author of Amazing Grace. I can never remember his name. But the author of Amazing Grace said this, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And that's what we look at. We can always find things in our life where we're like, oh my gosh, maybe this is me. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I'm going to be condemned. But the other thing new, you can always look at all those things like, but if I'm not what I, ought to, what I used to be. Yeah, I've got a long way to go, but I'm not like that anymore. And it's not because I cleaned up my act. And it's not because I'm better than my next-door neighbors. because, Jesus Christ, really did a work in my life. And that's what we look to. And that's what we examine. And so we, we don't need to falsely condemn ourselves and become afraid that we're it. But at the same time, we don't need to falsely convince ourselves that this warning doesn't apply to us. And, and that's the tension we hold. The unexamined life is a very dangerous one. But at the same time, only focusing on the bad things in your life is a very dangerous thing, too. And I remember somebody, well, it was Howard Hendricks. He told me to get a 3x5 card. And he said, on one side, write your sins, the sin that you just really pray first. And whatever sins God has revealed to you are the main one in your life, then you write those down one card. You make sure nobody sees this card. <laughs> and on the other side, you write the things that God has led you to that you feel like are your strengths, your gifts. And you put that in your Bible and every time you read the Word of God, you pull it out and you say, what does this passage have to say to both sides of the card? And eventually over time, you'll begin to add more strengths to one side and you'll cross off sins and vices and struggles and add new ones and one by one, He'll keep refining you and transforming you if you're constantly asking the question, what does Scripture have to say about my gifts and fruits and what does it have to say about my convictions and my guilt and my sins and i think that's the most important way to live life not living on one side of the card or the other but embracing both and realizing that god can use me but i have some work to do well he has some work to do but i've got some surrendering to do to let him do that work Yes. So, you know, like in Isaiah five, where he this, you know, we're talking about destroying the city, mm-hmm. and all throughout the Bible there's, you know, those stories, right? Is there a notion that, that there are believers that are wiped out because of collateral damage? Yeah. We're not told specifically. The, the implication that God kind of gives in the prophets is the one who's definitely the ones who died, probably the ones who really deserve the judgment. And the ones who survive are the ones who are the remnant. But that's not always true. That tends to be the general idea. But I wouldn't, there's not enough evidence Scripture to say that's exactly true for every single individual. We know that there are casualties sometimes. Now, here's the thing. There is no collateral damage when it comes to condemnation and judgment of God. Some of us might die at the hands of sinful people as judgments from God are poured out in the world. But God will never condemn the righteous. And Sodom and Gomorrah taught us the righteous will never be condemned. But life has taught us that sometimes the righteous do die and the righteous do suffer, but God uses it. And so Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Ezekiel, they're all good examples of they got caught up and the judgment. No, they weren't slaughtered by the Assyrians. But we have to remember that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were about 12, 14 years old. And we have to remember what we've learned from history. Chances are their parents were killed and their sisters were raped and then they were kidnapped and taken off into exile. And then Nebuchadnezzar started a brainwashing program on them. And they had every reason to curse God, but they didn't. Because God uses suffering to refine us. And so that's the amazing thing of God is He can bring disaster into our life. And in one person's life it's bringing judgment and the other person it's refining us and drawing us closer to God. And we don't understand like why God, especially now that I have three daughters. We were talking about that. That's a scary thing to think that I might have to watch my daughters go through suffering but that's what God does. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is God good? And do you believe it? And so the better thing to ask too is, do I want to be on the side of a God who's using the consequences and the suffering in my life to judge me? Or do I want to be on the side of suffering because God is using it to refine me and draw me closer to Him? Because it is scary to be in the hands of a living God. Okay, And that's the question. So here's the thing. Yes, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But there's also not the happy-go-lucky living in the bubble Disney Candyland life either when you're a Christian. And the question is, do you want to be in the judgment? Or do you want to have God's hand taking care of you in the midst of it all? Remember, the plane is going to crash. The question is, do you have a parachute? And that's the thing we need to ask. And to that, there are so many questions that I have too about, for God. About suffering and collateral damage and all that kind of stuff. But I know from His reputation, I can trust Him. I know from His reputation that things will work out, and I can trust Him. And that's what we need to share with the one who is in danger of re-crucifying Christ. We need to communicate to Him that God is trustworthy. Trustworthy. And God is worth taking up your cross for. Not condemning, not cutting them off, not walking away. But, we passionately, verse 11, want each of you to demonstrate the same eagerness for the fulfillment of your hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and perseverance inherit the promise. And once again, he goes right back to perseverance. But, remember... We want you to persevere, to be imitators of people who actually persevered, imitators of those who produce fruit, not being apathetic, not being sluggish, because we've seen with the warning passage that apathy, drifting, and sluggishness eventually leads to walking away. And that's not true of you. That's not true of you. Now remember, this is the theology the first, the second testament tends to be a lot of the very high concept theology, but the first testament is the practical examples of that theology at work, and the practical examples is David and Saul. David and Saul are both scumbags. They both committed some really horrible sins, and on the surface, one would think that they're both deserving of judgment, and they are. Because we all are. But the difference is, every single time that a prophet came and confronted Saul, Saul said, no, 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 you don't understand. I didn't really obey God. Because I was going to use this and turn it all around, and it's okay, no, 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 no. But I did obey God, even though I didn't do that. But no, God, you're wrong. You don't understand. That was Saul every single time. He's always rationalizing, always justifying. And that's why Saul, Samuel fired back with a very famous passage. Does God require animal sacrifice? No, He requires a heart that's devoted to God. And then He turns around on a David who raped a woman, killed a man, carried the Ark of the Covenant and turned it into a party float to celebrate His victory. I mean, you don't get any more like sinful than saying, Hey God, I'm going to take Your presence and Your glory and Your holiness and I'm going to use it as a parade thing to celebrate how great I am in conquering Jerusalem. And he does all these things, and then he says, oh, because Nabal didn't give me food and give me money, I'm going to go in and kill every single male and every single person in his village because he made me mad. But every single time the prophet Nathan said, you sin, David's like, oh my gosh, you're right, I'm not worthy. I don't want to be a sinner. I don't want to be a rebellion. I don't want to be disposed of God. I don't want to be separated from Him. What do I need to do to repent and change? When Abigail came to and said, you're about ready to kill everybody, and you don't want to sit on the throne of God one day and knowing that you've done this sin, and David's like, you're right. I screwed up. How can I change things? That's the difference. That's the difference. And so the question you need to ask yourself is when you sin, does it bother you? Do you want to know God more? And if you do then I am convinced of better things for you. And you're not going to be cursed, and you're not going to be burned, and you're not on the edge. And then you need to take that and turn around and say, the one that you love the most, do you want them to know God better? And do you want them to sin less? And so you share the Gospel, and you share the Gospel, and you love them, and you don't walk away from them, because God never walked away from Israel. He never stopped pursuing them. He never stopped chasing them. He never divorced them. He kept pursuing them. And you go into the life and you do the same thing. And then, in your prayer, you trust God that no matter where they are in these warning passages, that He loves them more than you do. And He's doing more to move creation, to redeem them and save them than you could ever think of. And that He's good and just. And that's all we have. That's all we have. And when it comes to but I don't understand, you say it doesn't matter. Because none of us understand anybody in our life perfectly, but we still trust them. So how much more could you trust God who is perfect when you don't fully understand his ways? I think it's so interesting we trust so many people in our life who are sinners. But then when there's one little thing that we don't understand about God, we stop trusting Him and He's not a sinner. It's just stupid. And so that's all we're left with. That's the only thing we can count on. It's the only thing we can rest in. And then with a New Testament example, we have Judas and Peter. I mean, look how many times Peter screwed up. And Judas did too. But one turned around and repented and the other walked away.